This episode of the Sportsman's Nation is brought to you by Outdoor Edge and their complete lineup of replaceable and fixed blade knives and game processing kits. Now, in my bag this year, I had the Razor Pro Saw Combo Kit. It comes in a very compact handy carrying case and one handle has the replaceable blade knife and the gutting blade the other handle has the saw that comes with it so i use the saw to split the pelvis and i use the gut hook to open up the cavity and the blade to start cutting all the stuff out right so uh, it makes cleaning a deer very simple very easy and the the knife is sharp and uh, if you've ever had to gut a deer with a dull knife, we all know how much that sucks. So um, take a look at the Razor Pro Saw Combo Kit and uh, head on over to OutdoorEdge.com and enter the discount code NATION30. That's NATION30 for 30% savings on your purchase. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith and Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. All righty, guys. Welcome back to another Land and Legacy Podcast. This is your host, Matt Dye. And what an exciting time of the year. We've got so much happening, um, traveling a lot. Some things, yes, are getting rescheduled due to weather, snow, below zero temperatures, and just kind of getting reworked. But it's it's an amazing time to be someone who enjoys creation um, and just being able to chat with you guys on a weekly basis, share what we've learned, and hopefully it means something um, to you all, and and you guys can take this um, education and apply it and improve the land near you guys. So before we jump into this week's podcast, I want to give a quick shout out and reminder for you guys to check out the new offering by Land Legacy. We are doing in 2021 two habitat seminars and so we are going to be on site in Alabama and in Michigan during June and July at clients properties who are doing implementing all of these types of practices from timber operations to prescribed fire to food plots to edge feathering to um, forest stand improvement all these different types of practices and here's your opportunity to see to, to enjoy and learn from the different processes and phases of land transformation. So those are the opportunities, guys. Would love to have you there. We'd love to be able to see you, answer any of your questions, and uh, just, just another way to outreach um, and, and get connected with you guys. So hopefully you guys can join us for those events. Be sure to register at www.shop landandlegacy.com click the field events tab and you'll find those two offerings right there available any questions let us know we'd be happy to address them all righty so we've got a fun podcast this week i am actually going to be joined here in just a minute by frank long carriage he is a land and legacy consultant. And just this past week, Frank and I were down visiting a new landowner in Mississippi. And this podcast is just kind of a a rehashing of of some of the things that we encountered there at that property. And uh, Frank takes the reins on this podcast and really just guides you you through um, a lot of the the different management strategies um, that we're going to employ here with this farm. And it's not your typical farm and not your typical goals that you may see on a property um, that we've talked about in the past or highlighted previous consulting trips. So a um, lot to learn, a lot of uh, perspective changing, thought provoking conversations that I think will be uh, very helpful for you guys during this podcast. So without further ado, here's Mr. Frank. All righty, Frank, are you there? Hey, yeah, I'm here, Matt. How are you doing? Man, I'm good. 
I'm inside. I'm warm. And so that's a good place to be right about now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we have got a nice fire going in our fireplace, and it is it is nice in here compared to what the, <laughs> the misery outside right now. Oh, man, it's yeah. just uh, – it's honestly that reminder of, you know, we, we have the ability to – move from certain areas and get inside and take refuge and take warmth. But um, literally this time of the year uh, and these conditions are many of the stress periods and the things that land managers really need to focus on and think about. Um, you know, if you're you know, specifically managing a property for X species, you have to have the conditions um, or habitat in very specific conditions for the animal you're trying to promote to survive stuff like this right now. I mean, uh, t- tonight's yeah. going to be negative, negative nine, um, in yeah. Southwest Missouri. And that's, that's cold. Now we don't get that a ton, but, um, guess what? It's still here and we, ha- we have to be, we have to basically cover our basis on the extremes of our region, um, with the landscape and with the habitat, we're expecting neighbors to do it. Sorry, probably they're dropping the ball, and so that that yep. that relies on or falls on our shoulders. This is a good reminder. Yeah, yeah, it really is. You know, and and I I, I was looking outside this morning and I was thinking about you know Bob White's because I do that, mm-hmm. and um, you know we we had we had a, a you know a light ice covering with some yeah. snow, and now we've got on that we've got this coming and. You know, I'm a little bit nervous about about um, did the management that I set up on the areas that I manage is it mm-hmm. is it going to be good enough? I mean, is there is there enough winter food? Is there enough winter cover? And um, so you've got to. And this is I probably a you know one time out of a decade that we'll have something like this, but you've got to be ready for it. You've got to you've got to manage for it and think about it. And um, so that'll that kind of leads into to what we wanted to talk about today. We had an opportunity to help a landowner that's trying to manage for all seasons, trying to prepare his property so that he has robust wildlife populations at all times of year, even this, even this nasty weather. Now where we were out in Mississippi, it may never get as bad as this, but you know, one time out of 20 years, maybe it does or, or, or gets or, or approximates this, or there, or there is a extended ice storm that, that, covers the landscape and, and and he wants to be ready for that so mm-hmm. we had a, we had a great time um with this gentleman on his property a property that had a, a diversity of of cover types uh from you know old crp tree plantings and some river bottoms to some some upland stuff that still had bob whites on it so it was yeah. a, it was a diversity of of landscape types and he really wants to transform this place to have a robust and also resilient, a, a resilient population of bob whites and turkeys primarily. But of course, white-tailed deer was high on his list. But but he wants these to be robust and resilient and to be able to withstand situations like we're talking about or withstand situations of high, you know, spring rainfall that may swamp some turkeys or, or, or may hurt some some quail production, but still have the habitat available that, that these species can recover. I, I think that's you know, a really, yeah, that's a really great point. And I'm glad you, you took the time to stress that, Frank, of resiliency. And I think that that, that term is often um, not really brought into the wildlife side of things. I think I think we've, we've probably on the podcast used the term um, or the comparison of surviving versus thriving but but literally we we are looking at in in some realms depending on the property or depending on the focus um of that property is we're needing some wild game species to be resilient um Mm -hmm. because of their numbers And, and so the habitat must be also resilient and robust and diverse and heavily managed to sustain those goals and they they may be lofty but but not impossible um and and not impractical there's ways to do it and we're going to talk about the ways where we're suggesting this landowner to do it but but literally there is a big difference and I'm, uh, i'm glad you brought it up but resiliency 
um, is a key. And I, and I know this kind of goes back to another podcast that we've done here recently is about, you know, people establishing firm, clear goals for their property. You know, Frank, if, if, if this gentleman had said to you, Hey, I just, you know, I want some quail on the property. Um, but my focus is more or less turkey and deer rather than quail and turkey. You and I would have approached this drastically differently, this mm-hmm. property. Yeah. And, and, but, but he stressed the importance of, you know, having as many quail as he can support being resilient and, and having the um, comparable uh, or, or growing turkey numbers as well. So, that clear de- definition um, for us coming into the project is a huge clear direction for us to be able to go to, to make sound management decisions. Say, we're going to do this versus that. Or we're going to do this to this degree and not to, to that degree. Whereas if we were, you know, had, had more whitetail focus, we would be doing this, but, but yeah. we're not. And so here's the prescription. Right. Right. And, and the, the, the cool thing about this piece of property is he already had a, a wild bird population there. In fact, we saw a nice covey of birds when we were there. Mm-hmm. What he wanted to do is he wanted to see this population, which was sort of in the north, um, the north end of his property, which had the better quail habitat. He wanted to see – he saw birds in the spring kind of throughout the property, which is what happens with Bob Whites in the spring. They, they, they disperse. They spread out, much like – turkeys do in the spring uh but he wanted to be able to have wintering populations for coveys scattered throughout and because and knowing that gives us an idea of what we're going to prescribe for him to do to take that population that's in the north of his property and how do we extend that into the into the landscape that's available now some of it is never going to be quail habitat and we'll talk about that mm-hmm. but a lot of it can can be quail habitat and what are the steps that we that we need to get there to make that happen. And one of the things that he mentioned to me, and I think a lot, and, and I think a lot of people feel this way because I've heard people other than him, you know, talk about these things is, is look, I, this guy was a huge turkey hunter. I mean, he big time turkey hunter. He, he wanted to maintain excellent, the excellent turkey hunting that he had. And he was, and he mentioned to us, you know, look, I don't want to sacrifice my turkey population or my turkey hunting to have you know quail just to just to, to maximize as many quail as possible he didn't want to reduce the turkey hunting availability or huntability excuse me or populations and i think and and, and it wasn't and, and it's a valid it's it's a it's a valid thing to think about mm-hmm. because a lot of folks think about quail as being a very very open land species uh, and they're found in places where wild turkey would never be, and that's true. But what we wanted to stress is that uh, in the southeast, at least, and even in the Midwest and the Ozarks where we're at, is maximizing quail production and ma- maximizing quail populations can be very compatible with your turkey goals. And so we wanted to we wanted to really stress to him, and we will in our planning, and we did visiting with him. How do, how is this possible? How can we maximize quail and still have excellent turkey huntability and turkey populations because they are certainly compatible and and, and work well together? Yeah, it's, so that, it's, was, that was something we needed to we needed to to, to get through to him first, and, and and he and he and he fully bought on after we talked about it. Yeah, and and I think you know getting into the management, the the, the nitty gritty of. Of, okay, well, this is what turkeys need, and this is what quail need. Um, not to say that there aren't, you know, differing food resources and, and certain structures and everything, but, but essentially they're both, you know, game birds, both ground nesting birds, both birds, heavily insect diets, but soft mast, hard mast. Um, there you go. Like, there's a lot of things that, that come together. Turkeys roost in trees, quail do not. Um, but both can take short, quick flights. Like there, there's a lot of things that overlap when we look at these species. So it's not a, it's not an, uh, either. I mean, excuse me, it's, it's not a pick one or the other, 
but it's yes. kind of a both. Um, and, and there's a lot of that overlap. I look at like the Venn diagrams from, from second grade and, and that, that middle section of overlapping um, is, is much greater than what the differences might be on the opposite side of the spectrums for, right. for those two species. So it's a right. great plus. Absolutely. And, and where, where, we, where we really could be able to, where we were really able to stress that is we were in um, uh, an, upland, an upland ridge that was really pine dominated. So he's in a pine system. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a very pine dominated landscape. And there was areas of hardwoods that, that were really, that were really great. And we're going to prescribe some, some, some ways to improve that, but it was largely a pine system. And we would stand there and say, look, we're going to take this down to a certain canopy uh, closure. So we're, we're going to reduce the canopy closure, get more sunlight to the ground. And we're going to think about we're doing this for quail. And so what's going to happen is we're going to get a flush of herbaceous habitat. We're going to get a flush of forbs. But also we're creating turkey nesting habitat and we're creating turkey brood habitat at the same time. Yes. So we're thinking about quail. But we just so if we've if we've opened up this 40 acre block, we've made 40 acres more quail habitat. We've already we've also made 40 acres more usable turkey habitat at the same time. Yes. So the, the, the prescriptions that we were mentioning and, and, and bringing forth are going to benefit both species. And um, it and, and it's and it's really goes back to that sunlight on the ground. You know, it was funny. He mentioned us. He. He said, I bet you're going to prescribe cutting more trees and doing more fire. We're like, yeah, <laughs> that's right, because it's all about sunlight. It's all about getting – I mean his his pine woodlands were were way too closed. There was mm-hmm. not enough sunlight hit the ground. But you know the cool thing is, and we saw it all over the farm, and same things that I, I got really excited about. I know you did too. Anytime there was some kind of an opening, like a, a wind throw – or a disturbance in the canopy or a or a road that went through there was all kinds of native species yes. little blue stem we found some big blue stem in places of course broom sedge native forbs roundhead lespedeza mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and it was like bingo you've got what you need right here it's ready to explode all we've got to do is give it its chance and so it was a really it's a really cool property because we know that it, that if he cuts more trees and does more fire, the response that he's going to get is exactly what he wants for his quail production and his turkey production. It was really cool to see. Yeah, he, he's totally going to add add value, add usable space by removing. So so we, it's adding by subtracting, um, gaining more valuable acres for both quail and turkeys by reducing the canopy. Um, we saw from the very north portion of the sec- the property, which was about three or four year old clear cut, s- s- replanted in pines. Um, then then there was about a 13, 14 year old unthinned pine stand. And then further south was probably a 20, 22 year old had one thinning um, and a prescribed fire that had gone through it about six mm-hmm. years ago. Um, that essentially was the property with some, you know, creek bottoms in between a couple of little hardwood drainages. But that's essentially what we were working with. So you almost had like this, this drastic change from, you know, north to south across the property, but it gave not only flexibility, um, but it gave uh, the ability for, through the prescriptions and the recommendations for almost immediate uh, diversification of the property because each each you know portion was at a completely different stage, and so yeah. that was good to be able to begin and work with, um, but but literally you know the, all those birds that were potentially working that northern portion of the property are not now going to be able to uh, mobilize safely securely over time heading south, um, and then and then instead of the middle portion of the property being much more of a pass-through area for Mm -hmm. turkeys or let's say a a habitat barrier for quail now it's not Mm -hmm. it's like it's like a melting pot right there in the middle right 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 and and so that that's a you talk about that that's a great point and it goes back to the whole resiliency idea is so right now his 
his wild quail, let's talk about his, his quail population. Mm-hmm. Right now, they are pretty much dependent on that north end. Yeah. yeah. And it was big enough right now that there's a covey using it, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if there was a second covey around there somewhere. Sure. In the middle piece, he had, he had talked about seeing a covey of young quail this summer, so there's probably another covey somewhere in the middle. But uh, in terms of population resiliency, that's not great because essentially there's a, there's a 240-acre section on the north that's providing year-round quail habitat and winter habitat and the rest of it's not mm-hmm. so that population and 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 there's not he's not getting a lot of help from his neighbors so right. the neighboring landscape is not being managed in in the way his is so he's really the only game in town for that local population of quail to make that more resilient he's going to have to provide more year-round usable space for that local population because no matter what we do on that 240 acres, he can burn it every other year, just do maximum trick-out quail management on that. At some point, there's going to be some kind of catastrophic weather event, predation event, or something that's going to cause that local population to blink out. It may be 10 years, it may be 20, but it's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. But adding that space throughout his property – where he's recreating those conditions from north to south, connecting disparate populations, connecting populations that may or may not be on his neighbor's property, then he's created a resilient population. Not only is it robust, but it's resilient. And the same thing can be said for his turkeys. He talked about how he had really good turkey hunting and and gobblers scattered throughout the property throughout the year. And no doubt he did, but you step back and you drive around and you and you get out and we walked a ton of this property. And that's one of the cool things about Land and Legacy, and I'll give ourselves a little plug here, is we walk so much of the property. We don't just drive around or look at a map. And we physically Definitely. get out and walk it because you gotta do it. That's what you've got to do to be able to see what you've got on the landscape. And by doing that, you begin to question, okay, where are these birds nesting? Where are they raising their young? What, where are they? They're, they're obviously there in the springtime gobbling and doing their thing, but where are they raising this broods? And while turkey hunting is really good now, think about how much better it would be if we added 40 to 50% more nesting and brood habitat yep. scattered throughout the property. And I think that's where we're really going to make our, our gains on this property is – is, is making a population that is can can sustain itself in a resilient manner because we've provided all the habitat needs from the north to the south and we're connecting all those birds across that landscape so we that's what we're going to prescribe to him and by the end of it he really he really you know understood what we were doing and thinking man I can I can have my turkey, my quail, and my turkeys too. You know, K can eat it too. Thing. Yeah. I can have my my robust, resilient quail populations, but I can have better turkey hunting, and my turkey huntability is not going to suffer. I mean, he talked about that. If we if we open this up and we do more prescribed fire, and we eliminate more trees, how's our turkey hunting huntability going to be? What is does it do me any good if I've got more gobblers but I can't I can't kill them? You know, it makes it tougher to hunt them. And, we talked him through that, and, and, and huntability is, is not going to change. In fact, it's probably going to be better because we've added more we've added more screening cover and ways for you to slip around because there's more herbaceous habitat and whatnot. So yeah, um, I mean, right, right now a 13 year old you know pine pine stand, yeah, it's it's relatively dense, but there's no attraction necessarily for for a turkey to be you know going through it except except getting to the other end so they can breathe again and, and yep. begin feeding or, or, um, you know, strutting, whatever the case may be. But, but now addressing those 240 acres in the center that hadn't been thinned, you're adding sunlight, that usable space is drastically increased. So there's a reason for them to be there and they're going to hang out more. They're going to become roosting locations rather than mid-morning sticking to the roads and, and walking to, um, you know, from A to B. These these areas are going to be much more uh, turkey-friendly, user-friendly. And, you know, yeah, sure, some, some of it may appear to be more open, but that that 
understory that we're trying to promote that actually makes the difference for nesting cover, brood rearing cover, and foraging uh, for even adult birds, that that type of cover um, will help a hunter slip around um, mm-hmm. or, or the species that are there or how it's maintained is then going to provide that other attraction. So maybe, maybe it's been four years um, and adjacent to that, there's a freshly burned area. Well, I, I'm probably going to hump the, the burned area during mm-hmm. the spring opposed to the four year old regeneration. That's a little bit thicker, a little bit denser, not as quickly to, to green up. The forage is not as readily available. Um, the strutting opportunities are not as readily available. Maybe there's some nin, hens mid morning that are going to, you know, head over and, and lay an egg. But the birds, the gobblers are still roughly going to be on the fringes then of that prescribed fire unit. So, you know, we, by breaking it up and even opening the canopy, we can still pinpoint birds and where they're going to be because of the management, because of those then plant communities that are following what's happening and occurring across the property. That's right. That's right. And and you can, you can, as you talked about, improve huntability by where you put your prescribed fires or, mm-hmm. or where, you, where you establish strut zones. And, and you can, you can make a property much more huntable by using the management techniques we're talking about, and and and, um, and we we talked a lot about that to him, and and I, and I think he was really excited with his turkey prospects by the time we were done. Yeah. And so that that brings back to another so to another point that I want to talk about is you know this was a pine system, and we deal a lot with people that are in pine systems, work a lot in the southeastern part of the United States, um, and and I really. It, it, coming from a coming from a hardwood landscape and a hardwood system and managing several hundred acres of hardwoods, whether we're trying to get it into to true savanna uh, situation because it was historically savanna or stuff that's a little more rolling that was probably more open woodland, not necessarily savanna, so not you know canopy closure of you know, 20 to 30%, but maybe a canopy closure of 40 to 50%. So more, more woodland woodland type Mm -hmm. stuff. I envy those folks that are in pine systems. We talked about this because they can get to where they want to get in terms of herbaceous cover on the ground and canopy uh, openness much quicker than we can in a hardwood system. I mean, we're working on some stuff, some Savannah stuff that as as 30 to 35 years in the making and we're still not where we want to go because we're, we're taking it very slow approach because in hardwood systems you have to because you know if you go too quickly sometimes you can get a a flush of, of hardwoods that are that are difficult to control but in pine systems you can kind of get to where you want to go much quick much more quickly because if you do so a lot of times there's no hardwood competition if it's been re- if it's been heavily managed and hardwoods are not really in the in this in the system or if you do get hardwood competition or hardwood invasion there's some specific herbicides that will work to control that that we can't do in hardwood systems. So one of the things that I want to talk about is is if you are in a pine system you can really you can really get to where you want to go much quicker than you can in other systems or, or hardwood systems. And so it's sort of an encouragement for folks that are in hardwoods or in pine systems to take that leap. Let's take that leap because you can get there pretty quickly and you can see results very, very quickly. And I, and, and, and I, and that's what we're going to prescribe to this gentleman. And I really think he's going to see really great results in no time compared to what you can in a hardwood system. Yeah. I, I think, I think when you compare them side by side, there's, um, Let's say that there's the implementation phase, and then there is, which would involve the mechanical harvesting, cutting, opening up the canopy, and then you get into the maintenance phase, and the maintenance phase from a pine um, position versus that hardwood thinning, that maintenance phase is is a lot more cruise control in in a um, pine-dominated area than it is in that hardwood situation. I'm not just going to say it's easier, but it probably is just flat out easier to manage the understory, um, the tools, the 
the spectrum um, a, a variety of tools that you can use from herbicides, the different firing techniques, um, timings of fire, everything uh, changes in, in the pines. And so that is an advantage. It's advantageous to have that. And one thing that comes up, you know, I think someone someone may say, what about, you know, if, if you've been in an area that's been pine plantation for a while and they have had habitual use of woody um, or, or broadleaf herbicide control, you guys are trying to um, promote a very herbaceous, forb-heavy response if you're mm-hmm. managing specifically for quail and for turkeys. How do you combat that in a pine system that's had multiple uses, multiple rounds of herbicide um, that has a detrimental effect on on the the forb communities? Um, yeah. What would you What would you say to that, Frank? Yeah, there's there's a couple of things that I would mention. We deal with that in in one of my um, savanna restoration areas. We it's a it's an area that was that was sprayed with. Um, with a broadleaf chemical, probably 2,4-D or something very similar, years ago to promote to promote more grass growth in the timber, and so folks could could actually graze in the timber. And a lot of the timber in the southwest part of Missouri was treated that way. And so, yeah, our forb component is pretty low. And so one of the things that we do, and one of the things that I would recommend is we kind of adjust our prescribed fire timing. So a traditional spring burn in, in late March or April is going to promote generally grasses and promote them very well. Uh, and that's and that's the typical sort of burn timing and burn regime that, that you see across the country, or at least across the, the Midwest and Southeast. The research has shown and experience has shown that if you vary some of that fire timing, if you do some of those prescribed fires in late August – or September or October up into December, you can get a better growth of forbs the next year. You'll get a greater diversity of forbs and forbs that will flower at different times and produce different types of seeds than if you're burning in a time where you're just promoting grass. Now, that that doesn't necessarily increase your forb species. It may allow species that weren't there before to germinate so you Mm -hmm. may see new species show up that were already in the root system or or excuse me in the the root bank or in the seed bank but you're not going to add you know several more you know you know you're not going to add several more species that that weren't there you may add some but you're not going to make it you know 20 times more diverse, something like that. Sure. And so one of the things that, that we do recommend is if, if you really need, if you really have a need for more Forbes and every place that I've seen really does have a need for more Forbes. And, and it depends on what kind of Forbes do you want? If you're thinking about quail or <clears throat> wild turkeys, do you want, you probably want Forbes that produce really good, hard, robust seeds and the fall and winter time. So there's a lot of forbs that produce a lot of herbaceous leaf, leafy matter that may be great for deer, but don't necessarily produce a great seed for, for game birds. So you can kind of tailor. So the point I'm trying to make is you can, you can plant those types of forbs. You can go in and intercede your stand with the types of forbs that you want. If you're interested in white-tailed deer, you can put the types of native forbs that are going to produce a lot of herbage or a lot of, um, forage for those species for, for deer and if you're interested in quail and turkey or something else you can introduce forbs that are going to have a lot of seed like some of the native lespedezas uh, some of the native sunflowers something like that that are going to have a lot of seed production that can get them through the fall and winter so those are the two things that i recommend and talk about to, to folks and do do ourselves is is change our burn timing and see what we get and then if we're happy with what we get, that's great. If not, we can go in and intercede with the specific types of forbs that we want. And and, and I think that's that's a that's a valuable point <clears throat> that you make is that, you know, we don't know the land management history of a lot of the properties that we're managing. And we have to infer what it is by looking at the species that are there. And to be honest, a lot of times we're dealing in a situation that is very low in forbs because it, they have been sprayed out 
because weeds are bad for cattle, right? Mm-hmm. You know, people you competing know, with grasses. Cattle, yeah, they don't want weeds; they want grass. And um, we see it all across the prairie landscapes. We see it in our upland woodlands. We see it in the southeast. So that's a situation that that we really have to to deal with with being creative. But it's important to deal with it. We really have to take we have, really have to take charge of that situation and and get those forbs on the landscape. And and I think that's why it's incredibly uh, important. We we make you know the the first initial. Um, recommendations to create the environment to generate a desirable response and then sometimes that des- desirable response based on the seed bank or or root bank may not occur to the degree that we want so then we we, we either come back and make, make another site visit or we um, continue to refine those those techniques and management um, and supplement if needed but it it's not just a open the canopy by seventy percent and burn. You're totally yeah. good. There there are things we may have to direct the course, but I but I can say very confidently, opening up the canopy in seventy percent is going to give us that illustration of yes. what the what the future is. And from there, we we make those really fine tune adjustments. And those fine tune adjustments take a game from solid reproductive state of a quail population to potentially that robust resilient population there right. there's a lot of places um and frank you, you know you can talk on this but there's a lot of places that that have birds and the and the the habitat is let's say adequate but mm-hmm. adequate can be improved um adequate doesn't mean that it's still striking on all cylinders. We see that so much in, in, let's just call it the deer world. You know, there's a couple counties in in every state that just, you know, every year they're just great producers of of top deer. Um, But literally there's, there's probably drastic room for improvement in each Mm -hmm. one of the properties that make up the county. Um, Actually, I, I know there is, and that's the same thing can be said for, whether you're managing intensely for deer, turkey, and or quail, we're getting there and it's going to take a little bit of time, but shaping plant communities occurs over growing seasons. Um, and sometimes we, we manipulate, we say, let's do a growing season burn here first. Great response, little grassy. Next time we burn, we're throwing in a grow, uh, I think I said, yeah, I, I said it backwards. Um, dormant season first, and then and then move into a growing season fire to promote those more, more forbs. So you know, yeah, we we got to keep an, an an open mind through that, um, but always be observing. Yeah, and it's in in its adaptability. I mean, we yes. we everything in life we do we we're, we're adaptable. You know, when you know in, in all everything that we're doing, you know, mm-hmm. something that we're doing at home is not working we're probably going to change it, right? Yes. And that's the same thing that, that we do in the wildlife world. And it's one of the frustrations, kind of get off on a tangent here maybe, but it, it kind of can ties in is, you know, in the wildlife world, a lot of times we have these set prescriptions mm-hmm. that are recommended, you know, burn in, in March or early April, you know, that, you know, plant your food plots this time of year, you know, do this and that. And those are prescriptions that that will work for a certain response but if it's not working to enhance or to reach the goals that you want to to reach then there's no reason to continue doing those things you need to be adaptable and that's where time in the field is so important yes to to get out and when you do a management prescription whether it's a prescribed fire get out one month two months three whatever it is and look at your response if you're doing a thinning, get out and look at your response and see what you've got. And if it works great, then hey, that's 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 wonderful. But if it's not what you've got, if if it's not what you wanted to get to, it's not where you wanted to get to. Excuse me. Then you need to be adaptable, and that's one of the things that 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 we always recommend is is this adaptability. Um, read your management and adjust if it's not working. And and um, you know, there's that's what we're going to recommend to him. And we, and we told him, Hey, look, you know, keep us informed, try some of this stuff and send us pictures, send us what, what happens, what responds, you know, if we need to run down for a day and take a look after you've done a year of management 
under these certain prescriptions, you know, we can come down and have a look and then we can make recommendations based on that. It's not just, Hey, here's the plan. Try this, you know, and, and good luck to you. It's, it's let's stay in touch. Let's be adaptable. Let's monitor this so that we can fine tune and get to where you want to get. That's, without that's super doubt. important. Without a doubt. Super important. The, I don't, I don't know. I got two things before moving on, but what would be a, an absolute, shame is for someone to go and do a great practice on a property and and simply look at their calendar or look at their um you know task management sheet and put a check by it and never learn from it so yeah. you know going out and doing a prescribed fire and say oh well there's my dormant season fire okay i'll come back and uh, i'll burn another unit next year and never look at what happened throughout the growing season is an absolute shame to not yes. learn and identify what actually the response was. We're doing all of this so we can learn what the plant community response is to then further guide and and move that needle of quality habitat further up rather than just stagnant. Oh, fire's done. What's the next next task? It, mm-hmm. it it's not it's not like that we we have to spend the time in the field to observe. It, it, for for the purpose of let's just say on this gentleman's property we had three coveys on the property currently in 2021, 2023 comes by and now we've got let's just say five or six and and he's like, "Wow, great. That that worked. That was successful. I've increased my bird population. I love it. Thanks, guys." When in reality, we should have taken it by to 10. We, sh- we should have yes. taken it to yeah, yeah. 12, 12 coveys across the whole place just by changing half the burn units and, and, and saying, actually, we're, we're going to change the timing or we're going to change mm-hmm. the intensity or we're going to change this practice that follows up that disturbance. Why would you want to sit there you know, and, and do that? This, this is a constant evolution um, over time after we see disturbance, monitor response, observe, next game plan. And and yeah. many times it could just be, I love that response. I'm sticking with this. That's exactly what this area needs to be. I don't want to make it anything else. Let's just continue this course. And that may be perfectly fine, yep. but it, yep. ah, you can't, don't get stuck in your ways and just t- check the box, box of task done and move on when potentially you're, you're leaving meat on the bone, let's say. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. And you know, I, it's a shame because I, I do see that. I do see that happen where people do this and, and it may be just a comfort, it may be a comfort thing. You know, I'm comfortable doing this. I'm getting something. I'm comfortable. I'm, I'm checking a box. I'm getting a burn done. It's safe. It's comfortable. Mm-hmm. I know what I'm doing. I don't have to think about it. Um, and then, but man, you're not really moving the needle when you're doing that. No. And you're not really, you, you're, you know, how are you serving the resource? You know, if, if you're, if you're just taking that approach and, and I know that it's, it's easier for a lot of people to, you know, to get into that funk, but man, it's, you've got to get out and challenge those things. Cause this, the, the landscape needs it. You know, it, 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 the landscape thrives on, you know, everything changes from year to year. You know, uh, yeah. and even when we do a prescribed fire on a prairie, you know, even a prairie that's that's a giant prairie that's got these certain species on it, you know, it looks like it's in a static, stable form. You know, that's everything. It changes whether the, the climate mm-hmm. changes from one year to the next or weather, whatever. We are doing a disservice if we burn that the same way every year at the same time. We're not we're, we're, we're not doing the landscape uh, a service that we want to do. So, you know, challenge those assumptions and be adaptable. I, I would, you know, yeah, I'm going to, you know, maybe be bold and, and say to challenge all those, those veteran landowners, those landowners who, who have sat on the same property and done things the same way time and time again. And um, yeah, maybe there, maybe there's results that are just everyone maybe who hunts the place or the, the bosses who, who pay you to, to do things are satisfied. Well, I, I, I guess I'm saying like, why just be satisfied? Why not be like overly impressed? Why not be shocked at what can happen on a property? And, and there's, there's a few, few clients and they've been on the podcast who they've done things differently. And over time, um, basically called us in and we fine tuned adjustments 
and they're shocked at the responses yeah. because because they took something that was good and made it great. And I think that there's a lot of people, experienced people, who who are sitting on good properties right now, but they're not great properties. And and yeah. I think that uh, many people can get them to good, but but there is still greatness that can be achieved on on certain properties, certain areas, whether you're again deer hunting, turkey hunting, or quail hunting. Don't just settle for for good, and and maybe don't just settle for well. This is the I'm the best in my area. Well, yeah, maybe yeah. your area is just that poor. Who yeah. who knows? But right, but right. but your your property is is um based on the diversity or the success of your property is based on the diversity of the habitat that you offer. If you are superior habitat to everybody else, great. But that does that mean that you've maxed out? the habitat on your property. Maybe right. so, may, but, but maybe not. And so yeah. uh probably went off on a little tangent there, well, but that's all right. Because, because here's my thought is, is those are things that, that need to be said. Those are, those are things that, that folks need to hear. And yeah, we, we kind of got up on a tangent, but it's important. Yeah. It's very important to, to state and, and to say, and, you know, kind of to pull it back, to, to this specific landowner, this specific property that we're talking about, um, he has a specific challenge that when we were done with the tour, I remember we were kind of standing mm-hmm. in the in his uh, in his shop there, and kind of scratching our heads like, okay, there's what are we going to do with this piece of property, this chunk of his property? Yeah, you know, we kind of looked at each other like, man, what 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 are we going to do? Not that we didn't have ideas, but how does it how does it fit in with what with what we're trying to to achieve and 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 when do we tackle this and specifically we're talking about a this piece of property had a couple of bottoms well it was one bottom there's a creek that runs through but on either side of this creek at at some time in history they had crops there yeah and at some point uh, the previous landowner had enrolled it into a CRP tree planting. So yes. took it out of production and and planted it to trees. Probably and, because it flooded all the time. Yes, yes. Yeah, it was very, very low. It was probably shouldn't have been farmed in the first place historically. It was it was kind of a you know, one of those areas that was that was where the where the CRP program w- was meant for. Mm-hmm. And um so I don't, I'm not sure how many years ago that was when it was planted, but the property is now – or, or the, that piece, the CRP contract is expired. So it was long enough ago that, you know, 10 or 15 I, years or more. I, yeah, I would have put it about the 15-year mark yeah, somewhere yeah, in there. So the, yeah, so the, 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 the contract was expired so that the landowner can do essentially whatever he wanted to. <clears throat> but, man, it was – it was sweet gum and mm. sycamore, and there were some there were some red oak species in there, but and it was it was right at the the end of its usefulness for woodcock habitat. But there was there was woodcock there. We saw several mm-hmm. displaying birds in the evening, so a guy could get some so some woodcock can can use it. But man, you're about three or four years of it being too big for that. So we we so basically it. It provides some kind of shady spots. They call it the cool bottom is what he calls it, the cool bottoms, because it's cool down in there in the summertime. And Turkey, he, he notices Turkey using it in the summer to, to shade up. Um, but there's not a lot of there's not a lot of herbaceous vegetation there, so there's not a, a lot of great feeding and brood habitat for the turkeys that are using it. Uh, and it was, it's not great deer bedding habitat. It's pretty, pretty open. You know, you can see through it. So it's not dense. And so, man, we, we struggled with that one. We have some ideas, but we struggled with knowing exactly when to tackle that and exactly how hard to tackle that given all the low hanging fruit that was there that we could jump on quickly and see an immediate response. This, these cool bottom, as I'll call it is going to take a lot of work to get it into something that's, whether it's going to be turkey habitat, probably not ever going to be quail habitat. It'll, be, it'll grow up too quickly. But some kind of, of, of 
you know, herbaceous turkey habitat or deer bedding um, or, 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 you know, something for deer forage or something, we're, we're, we're going to prescribe some stuff to him, but we, we really struggled with how to handle that. And the point that I'm making, we can talk about that, but the point that I was, that I'm wanting to make here is almost every piece of property has something like that, where you've got a portion of that property that's going to take a lot more work to, to make it into something that's really beneficial and it may be low on your priority list. There's other low hanging fruit to jump on. And so the point is you don't have to tackle every acre every year. There's some things you need to prioritize and there's some pieces that you just have to tell yourself that, look, it's never going to get out of hand. I'll get to it when I can, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to, jump on these other things first yeah and i think that's a great it's a great point because right now i look at it okay what is that site serving right now and if left alone for five years will it still serve that benefit or or will it not um because right now the about the only benefit that i see it producing is a great loafing area for turkeys they will scratch in the winter time under for some of the red oaks um that may or may not even be producing it was so thick but essentially it is a great loafing area for turkeys but mm-hmm. i look at the percentage and i think this is this was what helps make a determination first off does it have a function does it have a role okay yes some wildlife is using it. It may only be for a time or portion of the year. And then I will look at the overall composition of it across the property and say, what percentage does that type of habitat occupy on the property? For these sites, eh, 8 10%, 12% of the property probably. So it's like, okay, now I have its function. I have its role in my head. Now I have its percentage on the property. So really... And I think this is this is where a lot of people really, really bog themselves down and say, rather than saying what composition it actually holds or the value it holds, it just they focus on I don't know what to do with that. Mm-hmm. And they don't move past it and they sit there and they think and they think and they think and they think where ninety percent of the other portions of the farm are the low hanging fruit or have mm-hmm. other options that are just clear as day. You need to do this practice and you need to do that practice. And the faster you do it, the, the more usable space that you'll have for quail and turkeys. Because right now, no, I don't ever really expect a quail to be down and in that area, but wild turkeys are using it. So in the meantime, I'm going to go and focus my energy on the 90% of the property. Let the 10% be what it's going to be. I'll get to it in five years mm-hmm. because it's still going to function and provide that same benefit for five years. But then in the, in, in that five year time span, my energy is not focused on what to do on 10%. It's how I'm accomplishing the 90% and making that 90% of the property 50 times better. Yes. Yes. And yes. I see, I see people focus on that, let's just say 10% of the property of uncertainty where everything else is, let's say crumbling or degrading quality of habitat around them. It's like, why worry about this? This is nothing comparatively speaking. And and I think that's also kind of that, that role of potentially food plots in a certain um, realm of things. It's like food plots are functioning already yet, they get 60% of our time every single year and, and they only occupy 3% or 5% of most given properties. There's 95% of the farm that you don't know what to do with. And, and you need to be focusing time on that same situation here. I think, I think, I think we just need to put things sometimes in perspective and say, okay, almost like move back, take two steps back and say, does it really matter right now? Mm-hmm. And in this situation, no. That that specific day, as as you talked about, sure, I, I could have we could have made recommendations. You had ideas, I had some ideas, but it didn't matter because we 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 set him on a course to go and find a forester who's going to work on his behalf and begin to um, contract um, prescribed fire guys because we're managing that ninety percent. And and while we're developing this plan. Frank, you and I are going to talk about the 10% and put it in the plan. He's going to do it again five years, eight years mm-hmm. down the road. Right. 
Right. You know, that that's a that's a great way to great way to put that and, and to put it in terms where where folks understand that that, you know, if you look at it from the big picture, you know, that like you said, that only that only amounted about 10 percent of the property. You know, let's work on let's work on the rest of it. Let's let's get the let's get the rest of it in tip top shape. And 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 we I also see that and I've been guilty of this in my management, but I see it happen is is folks will try to do a little bit on all the all the property or try to do a little bit of management across the property instead of and so so you've got whatever limited management time money and resources that you have you're spreading it out and doing a little bit trying to cover it all mm-hmm. and it's essentially doing the same thing as as you're you're spending most of your time on on a small piece of property that doesn't that's that's like the food plot you talked about so it's prioritization of resources by spending a little bit of time on everything and trying to make it you're 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 not making any one area exceptional you're making all the areas yeah a little bit average or, or maybe try to get it a little bit you're, you're doing a little bit you're making a little bit of difference where you could have spent all that time on the real low hanging fruit. I know I've been guilty of that. And, it, and, and it's just, it's just a prioritization because you look at it and you're like, man, this is my property. I own this. I want to make it as good as it can be. If I'm ignoring this, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not being a good steward. I'm not, I'm not managing. I'm not being a good, you know, property manager because I'm ignoring this, you know, 20 to 30 acres for four or five years. Well, you yeah. are because you're spending most of your time, you're enhancing, you're tricking out, you're making the best possible um, of the rest of the property. So you are being a good land steward. You are being a good property manager. And part of that is being a good prioritizer, being able to prioritize your resources. And that can be said for everything in life. If you can prioritize your limited resources where you're going to get the most benefit, you really are being the best steward of, of the land. And that may be difficult to 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 hear or maybe difficult to put into practice when you've got say 40 acres that you're not doing anything with but um but trust me it it does it, it is the right way to go and and there's the point i think we were trying to make is is in most properties most landowners will face this at some at some point most property managers will face these types of hard decisions and um and once you step back and look at at the bigger picture, these hard decisions don't become become less hard to make. They become much easier to make because you're realizing the impact you're making on the rest of the property is going to be so much greater. So it's that this was a this was a very important thing to bring up. I think when we talked about this is, is to bring up on this podcast is you know this this will always be always be some decisions that you're going to have to make there's always be something you you know landowners will have to face and it's just prioritization of resources and if there's pieces of property that you can afford to ignore because they're serving a purpose then yeah you can you can overlook them for five or ten years to really attack the rest of it and i'm not trying to pat ourselves on the back or anything but but i guess i am trying to to point everyone to let's say the value of another opinion um and the value of we are very fortunate that we get to see this every day and we have to make these decisions um every day as to the priority and then to the value that these acres um are providing for certain game species and so by by being a new set of eyes and by being able to be critical and observe what's there, what's not there, we're able to make these what what may seem like a split second decision to forego putting time and energy into that given acreage at ten percent for five years because we've already valued the return of time and energy spent on the ninety percent, and mm-hmm. and so yeah you know, we're not saying that that piece is or acres are not going to be worked. It's just, it's just when it's just how they're going to be worked and and yep. what they're going to function and serve in, in the time being. Um, but, but that's, that's the, that's the reason honestly why uh, we get hired. I think some people are like, well, I, you know, I need some direction. Well, that's the direction that you're getting. 
that's the kind yeah. of stuff that is going to take you know a um whether whether you've owned a place for a long time or you're a brand new landowner that's the that's the speed um uh let's say recommendations that it's going to fast track the progression of the habitat that's going to fast track a response to get you down the road faster to reaching your goals and not be dilly-dallying and wasting time on things that will yield bad results you know we want to fast track this and um the the way we do that is is by being a consultant and saying this is your biggest return this is where you should spend your resources and and it's not just money it's not, it a lot of the resource that really comes down to it is time mm-hmm. that's the biggest limited resource for landowners is time and it so really it's is. nothing that you know like we have to be mindful of everyone's time um when we make these recommendations sometimes it could be hey i, I work you know an hour away or, or i live on the property that plays into it. That may say, well, we're going to get this done, you know, in a two-year time frame. Oh, well, I don't want to stress you out and then make you hate and resent this farm. Mm-hmm. Based on your time, well, let's do this in a four-year time span. Let's enjoy this work. Let's enjoy this process. But we have to base things off of time and priorities. And so it, there's a lot of factors that go into it. But essentially, that is something that we don't speak on a ton of. But I would say the value um, that we may be that we may bring to a property, and I, th- I again I think a lot of times it's people think it's brand new brand new uh, landowners, but and we we've worked a lot of properties together, Frank, where um, you know people have owned a property for many years, decades, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we walk on the property and and start to ask questions, you know based on our observations, well, maybe why are you doing it like this? Or have you considered trying this? Or when when are you doing X practice? Well, if, if you did this practice, have you considered this practice at this time? We might get that response. And they're like, well, I'm not really, not really done that because I, I just got, this is kind of how I do it. And I think that yes. can be a, kind of goes back to the earlier conversation in the podcast that, that just, man, prioritizing time. Yeah. So, right. Right. And, and that's, you know, that's a great example of having another set of eyes look at it. And even if, if the landowner has owned it for decades or even if it's a if it's an experienced land manager or wildlife biologist. And, and, I'll, and I hate to admit this, but I have I've had Kyle come to some of the properties <laughs> that I manage. No, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, Ho- and hopefully we'll he didn't listen it. to this podcast. Is that what oh, you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> and I'll have him come and look at look at some of the stuff I'll do. Whether yeah. it's just to come over during the growing season and say, "Hey, let's sure come and give me some ideas of, of what we're doing. Look at my grazing pattern. Look at my stocking rate. Look at look at my herbaceous habitat. Whatever it is, mm-hmm. I'll have him come over and I've had him come over and and we'll tour it. Or if we're hunting together uh, on some of the properties that we manage, you know, we'll look at it and give ideas. And, you know. We've been doing this for a long time, you know, I collectively for 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 several well, for a few decades, but it's always beneficial to have another eye to look at and to look at it critically from and and be willing to to tell somebody that what they're doing is probably not working or or try to do something in a different way, you know, and, and to look at it with a critical eye because you know, you're always kind of possessive of, of what you've done. Sure. And you're always kind of you know, like, I'm doing it right. I'm possessive. I've got ownership. The man, it, it, it's okay to have somebody else take, take an extra look, whether it's a consultant it or whatever it be. And I think that's a good, I think that's another function that, that we can play is, is experienced land managers that, you know, that can come in and talk to another experienced land manager and say, Hey, look at what I'm doing. Grade this, evaluate this. These are my objectives. Got to have those lined out first. These are my yep. objectives. Am I going the right way? Am I getting there? That's the value of, of having, you know, consultants that could come out and do that, even if you're an experienced wildlife manager. So, That's it. Well, I, I, uh, Matt, this has been great. You know, this was a, this was a, a, a good trip to go on. It was, it was a, it was a cool landscape. It was, a, it was cool to see this property in its, 
you know, in its portions that were really, really good habitat and to see that we can extend it to just see what, what he had and to give him ideas and to see that, that where habitat is really good, he's got robust populations of quail and good Turkey use. And to, to, to show that we can extend that throughout his property, it was, it was a really good piece of ground because it was so varied because there were pine stands of different ages that had different compositions and um it wasn't just a, a monoculture of, of the same not necessarily monoculture of, of of vegetation but of the same type of habitat throughout the property there was a lot of different it was a, it was a varied piece of property so it was a great it was a great piece of property to go on in a great a great time um do you have anything else you want to add Man, I, I I think you wrapped it up just about perfectly. I I always enjoy getting out on a property with you, Frank, and and working it. Um, you know, on behalf of the landowner, it it's always enjoyable. When I'm I'm always learning stuff from from you and Kyle being out there. Um, you know, and I we we both work in the field every single day, but but there's always little nuggets that oh man, I didn't I didn't quite think about that, or you'll say something that I didn't see. Um, to the same degree or to the same level, and just that that let's say back and forth. I, I love I love being on a property um, with you. So you know, any anybody who has you on site, um, man, that there's a lot there's a lot of, a lot of value that that you and Kyle both bring to the table. So um, I'll I always enjoy it. Certainly enjoyed this trip, but man, I I think like I said you wrapped it up perfectly. All right, man. Well, thanks. Thanks a lot. Um, it was great visiting with you. Great chatting with you again. Great to go on the trip with you. And all I can say is stay warm, man. It's going to be a rough few days. So try to stay inside as much as you can. Will do. You do the same, man. All right. Take care. We'll see you. All righty. There it is. There's a podcast for this week. Frank, thanks for joining me this week on the podcast and reviewing that property in Mississippi. I have extremely high hopes, um, and I know the direction this property is headed is is one that is going to be uh, managed intensely and for diverse plant communities. And from a wildlife perspective, we know that it's going to give an amazing result to this property for the health of the landscape restoration, and hopefully bringing back and bolstering quail populations on this property and the surrounding area. So a lot of cool things. Quick shout out to Niangua Coffee. If you're a coffee drinker, if you're an outdoorsman, this is the coffee for you. Amazing company, fantastic friends of Land and Legacy. Be sure to check them out at NianguaCoffee.com. Guys, if you have any questions, please reach out to us. Email us at www.info at landlegacy.tv or shoot us a message on Facebook or Instagram. We would love to get in contact with you, address those questions, and we appreciate you listening. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it, and we'll follow along next week. If you're interested in the other podcast for this week, we're continuing the Prescribed Fire series and talking a lot about how fire intervals will change and result in different plant communities. Much more in-depth about fire and its tendencies and the ability for you to use it as a very fine, acute type of management practice rather than a broad stroke that it often gets um, put in that box. So be sure to check it out. Appreciate you guys listening. We'll see you next week. Yeah.